by the spread of the gospel. And he really thought he was doing the will of God by persecuting Christians. Saul was not a bad man, not a callous man. He was a very religious man. And so he believed that he was doing the will of God in punishing believers in every city wherever he could find them. He was like a war horse, once having had the scent of battle, was now looking for new fields to conquer. A Saul believed that he could stamp out Christianity. He didn't realize at the time that persecution causes Christianity to thrive. Possessions will kill it, but not persecution. In the New Testament, every time one man was put to death, ten more stood up in his place. The same is true today. In many countries of the world today, Christians are persecuted and the unsaved people believe they can destroy it. No, others will always come and take their place. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. And they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They that were scattered abroad, not simply rabbis and preachers, but every layperson, wherever they went, they were spreading the word. Now Saul thought that his fight was against Christians, but it was actually against Christ. Notice that in verse 4. Uh, in verse 4, when that light shined around about them, there was a voice that spoke to Saul, and the first thing he said was, Who art thou, Lord? Who are you? The word Lord there can be translated sir. And so he simply said, Who are you, sir? He didn't believe that Jesus was alive. Who are you, sir? And then he learned two very important things. Notice Jesus did not say to him, Why did you persecute and kill Stephen? He didn't say to him, Why are you making it so hard for Christians to follow me? But Jesus identified himself with his followers. Whether you know it or not, when you touch a saint of God, you touch Christ. Whatever you do unto one of his own, you do unto him. There was a story that came out of the 17th century. Two Christian women, one of them an older woman, the other a younger, they were both sentenced to die because of their faith in Jesus. And the way they were to die is this. Uh, they were going to take the two women out to the ocean and wait for the tide to go out. And when the tide was out just as far as it could go, they drove a stake in the sand and tied the older woman to the stake. Then they came back in a little closer to the shore and they drove another stake in the sand and tied the younger one to the stake. Then they sat down to watch. The tide began to come in. It reached the waist of the older lady and then finally came up to a chin. And they looked at the younger woman a little closer to the shore and said, what do you see? And she said, I see Christ suffering in one of his saints. Whenever you touch the saints of God, you always touch him. 
You see, Saul thought he was persecuting a deluded people who claimed that a crucified criminal was the Messiah. But actually what he was doing was fighting against God. And he learned quickly the futility of war, waging war against God. You don't win. Don't try to wage war against Almighty God. The second thing was, not only did he learn the insanity of his own mission, but he also learned the inadequacy of his own religion. Saul was a deeply religious man. His father was a Pharisee. He was taught in the synagogue, also in the home. Later on, he was taught in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee. Not only that, but Saul himself was a Pharisee. And he later on said in the book of Philippians chapter 3, as touching righteousness, which of the Jews, I was blameless. I lived up to everything that the Jewish religion taught. He, he practiced his religion. Some of us don't practice our religion, but Saul did. He fasted frequently. He made long prayers. He observed the Sabbath day. He was zealous for the spreading of Judaism. Very, very loyal to the Christian faith. And because of his great zeal and his immense scholarship and his intellectual ability, the Bible said he was highly esteemed among the Jews. But his religion had not satisfied him. You may have a religion, but does it satisfy you? Does it bring inward peace to your own heart? Many people are religious, but they're not satisfied. And the religion of Saul, the Jewish religion, had not satisfied him. In fact, he was infuriated and frustrated by legal righteousness the keeping of the law which he had practiced and done had not brought peace into his heart. In reality, he was at war with himself. He had a conscience that tormented him daily. He was troubled. He was not a bad person, as I mentioned. He was not a callous person, but he was a mistaken good person. Persecuting Christians he thought was the right thing, but it was not. He was also bothered by the behavior of the believers. Now, he had already persecuted some of the believers in and around Jerusalem. Now he'll get them in Damascus. But Stephen's death was a goad in the heart of Saul. He was there. And when they stoned Stephen, they laid down their clothes at the feet of young Saul. He had listened to Stephen's noble defense before the Sanhedrin. He had seen his face light up like the face of an angel. He had watched him as he kneeled beneath a hail of stone. He saw the blood as it dripped from Stephen's face. He heard him praying for his murderers. And then he could never get away from those dying words that Stephen issued when he said, Lord, lay not this sin 
to their charge that haunted him day and night. Doubt began to come into Paul's mind. Could he be wrong? Was it possible that Jesus really was the Messiah? I can't stomach the idea, said Saul. He is a dead criminal, and that's the end of it. You know, Saul was seeking something, but he didn't know he was seeking. Fulton Sheen wrote years ago, there are only two groups of people on earth, those who found God and those who are seeking for him. Everybody has that religious inclination to know God. Uh, that's what Saul was enlightened about. Well, the second word is the word enthronement. He was enthroned about certain things. He, he needed to understand the deity of the Lord Jesus. And when that voice spoke to him from heaven, he said, Who are you, sir? Not Jesus. Who are you, sir? He was spiritually blind to the identity of Jesus. And then Jesus said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Saul was amazed. If Jesus was speaking to him, then he wasn't dead. And if he was alive, he had to be the Messiah. And Saul realized in a moment that Jesus was more than a great man or a messenger or a martyr, but he was the Messiah and the one mediator between God and man. He and he alone was the only begotten Son of God. But notice quickly the second word, and that is the word enthronement. Not only was Saul enlightened about Jesus, but Jesus was enthroned in his heart. Two things happened to Saul on that day. First, he was genuinely converted. In an instant, he saw himself as the chief of sinners, Salvation is always instantaneous. You're never half saved and half lost. You're either saved or lost. Now, all sorts of explanations have been put forth as to what happened to Saul on that Damascus road. One person said he had an emotional catharsis. Whatever that is, I'm not sure. Another one said he misunderstood a thunderstorm to be a supernatural event. It was nothing more than a lightning strike. Some say that he had an epileptic seizure. And so uh, he uh, was converted because of that. Charles Spurgeon, who was the prince of English preachers, said, if that's true, oh, blessed epilepsy, may everybody have one. Well, what really happened to Saul on that day? Saul and Jesus came face to face. They had been going in opposite directions. Saul this way, Jesus this way. And now they met on this Damascus road. And when he saw Jesus, his own righteousness became as filthy rags. And he humbled himself before the Lord. And immediately he was forgiven for the guilt of sin 
and also from the grip of sin. Sin should not have a hold on you and me. He was delivered. I like the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. He broke the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. What a wonderful thing. Saul was not only genuinely converted, but he was gloriously changed at the same time. He became a new creature. Whenever you're saved, old things pass away and all things become new. And with that becoming a new creature, he had a new attitude, he had a new affection, and he had a new allegiance. In that very moment, Jesus became Saul's king. You know, Christ is not only Savior, he's also sovereign. He's not only the Redeemer, but he's also the ruler. He didn't come to set up a democracy in your life and mine, but a monarchy where he would sit on the throne and you and I would be on the cross. Jesus became Saul's king and Saul became Jesus' servant. No longer was he on his own. All of his powers were suddenly put under Christ's dominion. All of his possessions were placed under Christ's disposal. All of his plans were placed under Christ's direction. David Livingston said this, I place no value on anything except my relationship to the kingdom of God. Now come quickly to the third word. We've seen enlightenment and enthronement and now employment. When the Lord saves, he becomes king, and we become servants and soldiers for him. Now notice two things that happened to Saul. First of all, there came an assignment to him. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said to him, you get up and go into Damascus, and Ananias is going to tell you what to do. Saul was blind by that bright light on the road. Others could see, but not he. What a change of plans this was. Can you imagine Saul, what he was thinking? He had anticipated entering Damascus, maybe the rulers of the synagogue meeting him and welcoming him, maybe having a reception for him. But all of that's changed. Instead of going into the city of Damascus as a proud man, a haughty persecutor, he was going in as a broken, helpless man in the presence of God. And so Ananias was sent to him. And Ananias prayed for him, and the scales fell from his eyes. He was baptized. And then Ananias said to him, now here's your assignment. You're going to stand before kings and Jews and Gentiles and all the peoples of the world. That's your assignment. Now then, I want you to notice this. It may be that one of the greatest unemployment problems in the world is not out there, but in here. All of us ought to be employed in doing something. 
Some of you could teach, but you're not teaching. Some of you have musical ability, but you're not using it. Some of you are good personal workers, but you don't have time. Not Saul. No, he received an assignment. And then after years of serving the Lord, he assessed himself. I want you to notice how how he did it. He assessed himself at the end. Saul never got over the glory of being saved. You know, most of us get over the glory soon, don't we? We soon forget about that marvelous, wonderful feeling that we had. Paul never got over the glory. Nothing ever stopped him. People, persecutors, prisons, nothing. I like what Jonathan Edwards wrote when he was an 18-year-old. He said this, Resolved, all men should work to the glory of God. Resolved, whether anyone else does or not, I will. What a resolution that he made. Well, toward the end of his life, he looked back and he assessed himself. I want you to listen to what he said. To the Ephesian elders, he said, I'm free from the blood of all men. I've declared the whole counsel of God. I've delivered my soul. Can you say that? To the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23, he said, I have a clear conscience before God. Can you say that? Standing before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 28, he said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Can you say that? Writing the last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, he said, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've run the race. Are you doing that? Paul's conversion is an example of what discipleship is all about. If you're here today and you've never received Christ as your own personal Savior, you can be saved just like Saul. Saul was a wicked man in the sense that he killed Christians. He was a murderer. He may not have done it with his hands, but he did. No matter who you are, in just a moment we're going to come and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're willing to admit, like Saul, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Save me. He never turns anyone away. On the other hand, if you need to rededicate your life, you may say, I've been saved for years, but Christ just really hasn't been enthroned in my heart. I want to do that. Or maybe you want to transfer your letter and become a part of this fellowship. We're going to stand in just a moment. Anne's going to come. Lead us in a hymn of invitation. And as she does, I invite you to come. Let's stand together. Will you slip out of your place and come?
Come home, anyone who will. Someone else, will you come quickly? Anyone else, if you come, we'll wait. seated. Josephine, come on up. Church family, uh, Josephine Tapia. How many of you know Josephine? Raise your hand. Oh, look at you. You're popular. <laughs> Josephine has uh, made the commitment to join Ashley River Baptist Church as a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. If you will affirm her, yes, give her a hand. We're so grateful for you. Now, she's going to stand up here at the end of our service, and I want all of you to come by and introduce yourself to her and encourage her, okay? Okay, so you'll stay right here, okay? All right, so I have a few announcements for our church family. First of all, um, this summer has been a season of reflection, has it not, for you and for me? The month of August begins, believe it or not, today's the last day of July. Can you believe it? How many families are excited that school is starting back? Okay, yes, I see most of the parents raising their hands. So this has been a season of reflection. The month of August, all of the messages will be focused on the topic of faith. This is a time for faith. And as Jesse preached this morning, the trust is in the lordship of Jesus Christ. And will you open yourself to be employed by him? Number two, I want to remind everyone that Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. Okay, 9 a.m. A lot of people thought, hey, maybe that's just an error. No, we want you here at 9 a.m., so that we can fellowship and spend time together, spend time in prayer, but then we can also study God's word together, okay? So 9 a.m. What time does it start? Y'all are good students, good students. All right, so uh, lastly, a letter will be going out to, um, to the church this week, both in an email format as well as uh, mailed to your home. And it's going to detail all of the activities we have planned for this fall. So when we plan these activities, we need workers to work, okay? So this will be an appeal letter for you to get started. 
just so you can get your mind around it, September 7th will be our first Wednesday night ministries evening. And we're calling it the Oasis, the Oasis. So it's kind of like Moses was in the desert with the Israelites and they were hungry and they were thirsty and God provided the waters of Marah. And when they came up to it, do you know what happened? Exodus 15, do you know what happened? The waters were bitter. But then God showed Moses a piece of wood and he put the wood in the water and it became sweet. And so this is what we're calling Wednesday night in the fall, the oasis, okay? So with that, please stand for our benediction. And after the benediction, you're going to come see Josephine, okay? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you today.